This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the garage. You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. Filling it with song. Christina Adams is an award-winning author and journalist who writes and speaks about autism and camels. Her new book is Camel Crazy, a quest for miracles in the mysterious world of camels. So tell us about this mysterious world of camels and how you got so interested in camels. I happened to be at a children's book fair in California, and I saw a camel standing there. And I was bored enough to go over and say, what's going on with this camel here? And I saw a guy selling soap and lotion made from camel milk, and I said, what else do they do with milk? And he said it was considered to be non-allergenic and given to babies in the hospital in the Middle East. And I thought it might be something that would help my son with autism. Talk about your son's situation and the challenges you've had with him. So my son was almost three when he was diagnosed with autism. So he had been a typical baby, but then he kind of regressed. So it became apparent to me that after he was diagnosed with autism, that he had a problem with food and milk mainly that affected him really badly. So any kind of cow milk and other kinds of milk would actually make him have autistic symptoms. He would not sleep as well. He would hand flap and toe walk and do things like that. It also became apparent that sugar was an issue for him and carbohydrate foods. And so once I introduced the diet to him, he got better within weeks. So I was always looking for a milk substitute, and I had to turn to things like potato milk because the other milks were not great as well, soy and things like that. And so by the time I'd met the camel, I'd struggled with the milk problem for a couple of years. And when I had the idea that camel milk might not only help my son's immune system, which I knew was connected to autism, as we know now in science, I also realized this could be a great milk substitute for people like him that could not have regular dairy. So tell us about your early experiences with camel milk and your son and how he responded to the camel milk. Well, that day that I met the camel and had my idea, I went home and I researched things on the internet, and at that time there was just about zero information. There were just a couple of strange articles about how hard it was to make cheese out of camel milk because it doesn't coagulate like other milks, and something about the history of wound healing, but I just kept researching, and then at that time also I had become a single mom, and so a couple months passed, and I kept researching it. I moved out and uh, started the single parenting process, but I didn't give up. 
and I went to a university near me, University of California at Irvine, and went to the library, and I realized a new article has just come out about camel milk, of all things, and it was written by two Israeli scientists, and they had given camel milk to children with autism in Israel, a small group, and they improved. And so I knew then I was on the right track. So how was I going to get this milk? That was the hard part. There were no camels that I could find in America. It turns out there were some out there, but they aren't people that were easy to get in touch with. So I had to start talking to people, and I flew some in from Bedouins in the desert in the Middle East, and it got taken away to JFK Airport and dumped out. But then I learned how to do it right, and I connected with the researcher in Israel, and so we were able to get some in through Los Angeles Airport. And so suddenly I was holding bottles of frozen camel milk from the desert in my own hands in my California condo. And so then I just didn't know when I was going to give it to him. And uh, by the time I actually gave it to him, he was not doing well again. He was starting to regress. And so I was kind of desperate. And I gave it to him. And the results were so amazing overnight. Four ounces of camel milk made a marked difference in my son. You've traveled all over the world talking with various people about camel milk as well as trying to make it easier to access camel milk, import camel milk into the United States and even setting up camel dairies in the United States ultimately. How long have you been working on all of this? When did this whole journey begin? Yes, it's been quite a while, about 14 years of research we're talking about here in my book, Camel Crazy. So, you know, it came from actually nothing really being out there and my son in a way being patient zero in most parts of the world and he was also the longest term person to use it and so yeah it was a lone quest it was just me trying to get a hold of people and not a lot was known about it at all and almost no one you know knew that it would help autism except the two scientists in Israel so it was a long lonely journey but it was a fascinating journey so I started reaching out to people who owned camels I met a Tuareg from Niger who is from a wonderful camel herding culture. And then I started really getting into the world where tribal people are, where nomadic people are who are specialists in camels and their long history. And camel milk has been used for healing by humans for centuries and centuries. And it's in literature if you know where to look. But autism, there's always been cases of autism, but there's kind of new forms of autism are both immune linked to environmental aspects. So we have a lot more than we ever had before, and there are some different subtypes now. So no one ever knew that it would help for that. And, of course, it doesn't help all cases, but it helps a lot. So I guess my work, you know, just was a thing where there was no one doing it, and if you want something done that no one's doing, you kind of have to do it yourself. So you've become probably the most well-known authority on the subject of camel milk in relation to autism. Yes, I would say that's, that's true. It's kind of a funny distinction, one that I could have never foreseen for myself, but it's true. And I'm just really honored that so many people have assisted me to understand so many things about camels and the milk so that I can put the pieces together and kind of put it into practice. Then I wrote an article after camel milk started becoming available in America, and that article was in 2012, and it was called Got Camel Milk, and that really went viral around the whole world, and it helped kickstart the global industry. And then in 2013, I wrote a medical journal article, and that now has been cited maybe 12, 13, 14 times by other researchers, 
And so that really kind of helped things move forward. And it's just such a natural, you know, easy thing to try. And it's just such a healthy food, no, no matter whether it has, you know, like an observable effect or not, even though it does for many, many people and children with autism. So parents really prefer things that are natural for their children. And when you can find something that's effective, it's natural. It's no wonder that there's a demand around the world for it. So could you talk about some of the other benefits of camel milk? Yeah, so camel milk has now been increasingly shown to be efficacious for diabetes, type 1 and 2. There are cases of rheumatoid, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in adults where they do much better. There are gut disorders where people that pretty much can't eat anything or tolerate anything, they can have camel milk. And, of course, nomadic people live on camel milk for a year or two at a time. So it's a highly body sustenance. And so it also can help food allergies. There's literature on that. There's literature that it has GABA, which may be connected to the neurotransmitters in the brain and has a calming influence in some people. We know that the enzymes are quite unique and powerful, and it also has things called nanobodies. The antibodies are quite special. They're very, very small. And those are the things that give immunity in milk to infants and, you know, animals, baby animals. So the camel milk contains antibodies, but they're super, super small, and they're very powerful partly as a result of that. They can work their way into the crevices of germs and viruses and pathogens, as we call them. And so that's why they're very good at addressing different parts of illness. And there does seem to be a key also with reducing inflammation. And so in the book, of course, I have a user's guide in the back that lists many of these medical conditions and what the suggested serving amount would be. So that's something that when readers read the book, then they often are like, where can I get camel milk and how much do I give and what can it do? So I put that appendix in the back on where they can buy it in the U.S. and globally and then, you know, how to actually use it for what. So getting back to your son, how is he doing at this point? And does he still need to drink camel milk? And... Does camel milk have a a curative effect on autism and these various conditions, or is it something that you have to use on a continual basis? Well, that's a great question. I do address it in the book. So for him, he's doing well. He's studying in college and living in an apartment at a community college, and he lives in an apartment with a roommate. And so I never use the word cure when it comes to autism because we don't really have a cure yet. And what does that even mean? So... There are different subtypes of autism, so, you know, you wouldn't want to cure, like, the exceptional high intelligence and pattern recognition skills you have in some people with autism, but there are a lot of people with autism who have, you know, very, very troubling impairments, and you do want to fix those because they can't take care of themselves. They can't, you know, they're in pain. They can't eat anything. They're, you know, aggressing against themselves. So those are the kind of things that, you know, you really would like to find a, a treatment for. But as far as him, he's doing very well. I don't think here, as I said, but he still has like attention, attention and, you know, kind of organizing things, but that's pretty typical. And he's super high IQ, super nice, thoughtful, super intellectual guy. He's just so nice. And I just can't say enough about what a nice young man he is. And he has friends too, which is always wonderful because a lot of people with autism spectrum don't have any, even though they want them. So he drank it for so many years that I feel like it had a long-term effect on him because he used to, he couldn't have any regular uh, butter or cheese or cow dairy kind of stuff. And one time he got someone who was a kid and he said, Mom, it feels like there's dirt in my brain. 
and it was making him hand flap and toe walk again. So after all those years of drinking it, I feel that he's treated a lot. Like, he can eat cheese and things. He does say that when he gets a whole lot of it, his cheeks kind of feel red. And so that is a sign that it's still inflammatory for him. I don't really want him to have any. But, you know, when he's hanging around with his guy friends and somebody orders a pizza, you know, what are you going to do? He's a young man now. But it does have, in some kids and some people, a curative effect and that it does treat that problem and it doesn't come back. And then there are other types of conditions that are more chronic and they do need to keep drinking it. So it's very individual. Initially, at least, you were getting raw camel milk. And I'm really curious if there's a significant difference between the efficacy of raw camel milk and pasteurized camel milk. Yeah. So I did fly in the raw milk from, you know, the Middle East. And in those desert environments, the camels do roam, which is excellent for any livestock, especially camels. It's good for them. They're meant to do that. They do graze on the desert plants and things. So a camel living in its natural environment, like any animal, usually that's the best kind of milk. So that's really good stuff. And that was very powerful milk, that raw milk from the desert. However, my son being kind of patient zero on this, he was the first person to try milk from different countries for autism. And so when the American milk had the same effect on him, that told me that it's the camel. It's not the breed, the feed, whether they're in the desert or in America. It's the actual camel, the kind of the platform for delivering this amazing milk. And so I do feel, since I've had so many from so many countries, and my son has two, and the only milk in our house anymore, I do feel raw, of course, is the most powerful. I mean, it's no surprise that is what is, you know, the way nature intended to be delivered. But the pasteurized milk, especially when it's not what they call like the long method where they cook it for 30 minutes, that's what you don't want. You want the flash pasteurized milk where it's only heated to a boiling point for just a few seconds and then cools off quickly. So that preserves so much. And many people are doing just fine on pasteurized milk. However, there are a lot of people that need the raw milk. So I really think it's important that the raw milk supply is not only maintained but enhanced because that is the best form. But the pasteurized milk is easier to kind of um, sell in certain places, and uh, the powdered form can travel with it easier. And so those forms are great, too. So what I suggest is that people start with wherever they're comfortable. A lot of people love raw milk. And now in the United States, about 43 states have some form of raw milk available legally. So in your state, you may have access to raw milk. There's just different ways that you can attain it. And then for the people that, you know, can't do that or don't want to do that, then they can get the pasteurized or the powdered delivered to their home now. You can get delivered camel milk to your home, which still boggles my mind after having fly it in, you know, at a cost of $1,700 on an aircraft, which I used to have to do for years. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a funny kind of story to be paying people's round-trip airfare just to bring in a suitcase or two of frozen raw camel milk. So I'm really curious, where can people actually get raw camel milk, particularly if you're in a state like I'm in Vermont. I'm pretty sure there, there are no camels here. I don't even know if the climate is suitable for camels. Yeah, you would be shocked at how adaptable camels are. Even I'm shocked, and I know how adaptable they are. Camels do very well in so many environments. Now, ideally, of course, a state like Texas is really good. It has the same latitude as Egypt, they say. And 
you know, they like a desert climate. However, they do fine, too, in the colder climates. The main thing is that you just want to give them a lot of dry pasture. The one thing they don't care for is rain. It doesn't hurt them or anything, but they just like to go inside in the shed when it rains. But uh, we have an excellent camel farm in Michigan, and it's a cold part of Michigan, and the camels do great. And we have camels in so many different places that you would never expect. In a freezing cold part of Colorado, we have an excellent camel dairy. In Missouri, we have like one of the biggest camel herds in America. So I would not be surprised if there are camels lurking somewhere in Vermont. Um, However, dairy is a whole different issue. So, you know, you have to kind of get in that network. So I would say that people can get it by, first of all, you go to my book and you're going to have a global resource all over the United States and in the other countries. And then you can actually call people on the phone and tell them, hey, I'm here. Do you serve me? Or do you know somebody closer to me that serves me? So if you want raw, you can kind of get in that network and find out where to get it. And then also some of the raw dairies are listed in my book. So where there's a will, there's a way. That's really my message of the two books that I've written. Where there's a will, there's a way. The way may not look like what you think it will look like. But there's usually something out there that you never dreamed existed. And if you want raw camel milk, there's no doubt you can find it here in America. For example, there's a farm in Michigan. It's Camel Milk Association, and he has a, a licensed, uh, you know, herd share in Michigan, and so people are allowed to buy it raw in Michigan. And so there are other places like that they can sell in the state. So like in Missouri, you've got humpback dairies. They can sell raw milk in the state, you know, so it's a matter of, you know, how, how would you get to the state and what will you do after that is probably your business. So that's why... Uh, it's a way to kind of, it's kind of rewarding to get into the network that way and find out what works for each different family. And of course, people can always get in touch with me. I would also say that ordering the powder is great too, because, you know, you can have it on hand and you can travel with it or take it with you pretty easily. So you always have something acceptable either for you or your child when you're on the move or, you know, for some reason you run out of your liquid or your raw, the powder's uh, doing pretty well for people. And then, of course, you can get pasteurized milk anywhere, online, get it delivered to you, whatever. I went online and I did some research on, you know, sources of camel milk. Camel milk is pretty expensive compared to other forms of milk. Yes, and there, there are reasons for that. So, first of all, they don't give as much milk as a typical cow. For a camel, you might get 6 to 10 liters a day. And they also have very long pregnancies, about 12 to 13 months. So you can't, like, turn out a lot of animals. And then the baby nurses for a year, and you share the supply with the baby. And trust me, the babies get plenty. They're totally well taken care of. But so you get a year of milking, and then you generally get the camel pregnant again. So those are the things that make it difficult. Also, the consumer generally wants it raw. Well, often, sometimes they want it pasteurized, but a lot of times they want it raw, they want it organic, and they want it, you know, very carefully managed, like the camels not getting antibiotics, everything holistic, the feed being very, you know, clean. So it's really a product that is made for health standards at this point. And so that's not a, you know, big ag thing. It's a small farmer product, or in the Middle East, you have the large dairies, but they also practice similar things. So it's really the economy of scale. And Camels also will not give milk if they're not happy. And so you have to have a bond with the camels. You have to have somebody, you know, taking care of them that they feel comfortable with, and then they give their milk for you. And so 
it's never like a big, you know, product where you're just treated like a disposable, you know, kind of milk machine. They are boutique animals, and so that's one reason it's expensive. The struggle with investing for the large people that would want to get into this product is it's not the kind of thing where you can put in X amount of money and then flip it around and sell it, you know, for millions of dollars within X years like a lot of investors want to do. It's really more of a lifestyle kind of investment where, you know, you, you put the money in to your business, you get some money out of it. It's, um, it's a very special product, and it, it is priced that way. But I will say the farmers don't make a lot out of it. And they make good money, but they don't make a lot. And these are working farming people. They don't have, like, lavish lifestyles or anything. They're hardworking people living out on their farms. So it's kind of like liquid, you know, I don't want to say like it's a drug, which I will not say, but you got to think of it almost as like a liquid medicine because if you're sick or if you have a real problem, you're going to pay that instead of a drug copay or going to the doctor or something. You know, that's the kind of way that I look at it. Mm-hmm. So I find that really interesting how camels are so sensitive I would love for you to talk more about what camels are like. I have never encountered a live camel in my life, and I suspect that probably most people here in this country have not encountered camels except, you know, seeing images of them in movies and things like that. You describe camels as being very large, which sounds very intimidating. We see them mostly as being very placid, but that's not always the case. Yeah. Camels are something that most Americans have zero concept of except for as like a thing with a hump that you might see, you know, in Egypt. And so the only people that really have an idea about camels are maybe tourists that have gone to other countries. And and maybe they'll see the kind of, you know, roadside tourist camel where it's standing there. It's tied up. You know, it's not particularly well-groomed or anything. And so some people have a negative impression when they see that in another country. And so once you actually are around camels, then you start to realize these are really big, big animals, and they're actually really beautiful. They look strange because they look like there are a bunch of different parts put together. They don't look like a horse. That's the only thing that I could first think of when I was trying to understand camels, like how does it relate to my concept of a horse? But it really doesn't. It's, you know, kind of disjointed. It has these, you know big kind of legs that look like they're in three different parts each. It has a hump. It has um, a long, long neck that's super thick and a small head in relation to that big, thick neck. And, you know, it's, it's just like a very strange-looking animal because they also move very slowly. Now, they can race. They are used in racing, and they can go pretty fast, but they always are kind of like animals that look like big, calm kind of animals. But then when they run, they can look kind of funny because the way they move is they move their legs on the same side at the same time. And that's called a pace. It's a special kind of walk, and it makes them sway side to side. So that's one reason they're called ships of the desert, because they can bring stuff through the desert, you know, like a a cargo boat through the ocean. But they kind of do this rocking, swaying kind of thing. So they look funny, but once you're around them, you really start to notice that they're beautiful, they're intelligent. They're always watching you. They're always aware of things, but not a lot bothers them. Like the legend is that camels have been used in battle because they can handle things flying around, noises that other animals can't tolerate. 
So they do have a startle reflex, but it's very minimal. So they're very calm generally, even though if they get angry, then watch out. But do they spit? That's another big thing. So I've never seen a camel spit yet. I've been around thousands and thousands and thousands of camels. I've never seen one spit. However, they do do that, but it's not really spit. It's when they get irritated, they will start to give you a warning and make some signs, but most people don't pick up on that. And so it's in the rare time when that animal does fling something disgusting at you, it's not spit, it is vomit. <laughs> Your descriptions of camels were so fascinating, and the way people relate to them. It is a very distinct animal, and it has a very good memory, and it bonds very strongly with humans. So it's got to know you in order to, to trust you, in order to take orders from you, in order to do what you want, and it'll test you. Camel likes to test the people that are taking care of them, and they want to know where they are in the herd. You know, there's this dominance that flows through the herd, and the humans can be at the top of the herd. So they can be a herd leader even though they're a human. And so they want to test. Camels like to play. They'll come and they'll, they'll test you. They'll nudge you. They'll see how far can I get in your space. And generally this is the young ones because this is what, you know, young kids and young animals do. And so the human has to know, like, how far they can let the camel go because the camel will establish that dominance and run over you if it, it feels like it. So they want to know what their place is. And they also are very intelligent. So some of the camel handlers that I know, some of who I feature in the book, they say that the camel's intelligence ranges anywhere from like an eight-year-old child. And I was just at a conference in Texas, and there was an international Australian camel handler there, and he was working with the camel, and he said, you see this guy right here? He said, he's so smart. He's about a 12-year-old human level. So when you're dealing with something as intelligent as that, yet they're an animal, You've got to kind of learn to read their signs to keep yourself safe, and you have to make sure that they're safe. So you have to kind of not put, you know, toys in there that could hurt them, or don't put a fence in there that isn't big enough, because it's got to be high enough that their head can't, you know, easily get over it. Otherwise, they're just going to run right over it. So people often ask me, well, can I get a camel for my backyard? And I'm like, well, yeah, you can, but that's not a great idea so you really need to get into that camel network in America which is actually a really international network and everyone will help you if you really really want to get into the camel world but they live a long time they live 30 to 40 years so it's a real commitment when you get a camel however you know you can sell them and people just love to have them so it's a tight-knit little world that camel world but we have thousands of camels in America and is that new it's sort of new there are camels here. Most of them here came from an Australian load years ago that has just kind of grown and, you know, been bred. We used to have camels here that were flown in. The U.S. Army had a camel experiment before the Civil War, and they thought camels would help them settle the West. And so that experiment was happening, but the Civil War kind of put an end to that. So those camels all died out. But, so we have them here, and they are breeding more. People are getting into camels more. Interesting, a lot of women that have experience with horses are now being moved into camels. They like being around the camels, and so that's one place we see the interest flow. And just people are generally becoming more aware of them, but you can't just run out and buy one and put it in the backyard. You've got to really know about them and their behavior. The rest of the world that's had camels, they know camels are a wonderful, reliable animal, 
and they're actually, you know, really adored in other cultures. But here we don't know anything about them. We just like, oh, it's a camel. So they're really an undertapped resource, both for an excellent climate change animal, because they don't need as much water and feed as cows. They don't put out the waste that cows do. And also for that incredible, powerful milk that they produce. Christina Adams is an award-winning author and journalist who writes and speaks about autism and camels. Her new book is Camel Crazy, a quest for miracles in the mysterious world of camels. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Talk more about how they could help mitigate climate change. Well, camels are an animal that is extremely hardy. And so cows need a lot of water, a lot of grass, and they put out a lot of waste. Now, livestock can be really well done. I mean, there are cows that are done very, very well. So other cultures and other countries, they run their cattle more, you know, not in the way that we would recognize. They run them like nomadic people do. So the cattle are grazing, the cattle are going, you know, out across the country, and the people are living off of the products of their cows and selling it. So, like, that's a better way to do it. And then here in America, we do have some very sustainable farms that are actually getting a negative carbon sink out of their cattle. One of those is White Oak Pastures in Georgia. But that's a very, you know, regenerative kind of farming. And I would like to see us get to that model with cows. However, the camels should not be overlooked because in this country, if there were small camel farms in different places, then you've got an animal that doesn't take that much water, that puts out very small amount of waste, and that's highly nutritious milk. And it doesn't tear up, you know, the pasture. It doesn't have to have a lagoon of, you know, waste like pigs do. And so it doesn't put off, you know, like the methane and stuff, which is sort of debated among the cow people. But, you know, that's the perception. So I think that those are very sustainable animals. And see, we used to have that model in other countries. The pastoralist people, nomads that I write about in my book, in the different countries that I visit, they live that way with the groups of animals sustaining their entire community and they graze them and it's good you know to help generate the environment so when you have small local sustainable agriculture with animals then you're not getting these big giant lots you're not getting the pollution you're not getting the trucks running back and forth adding to the carbon burden you're having local sustainable stuff and that's what camels would be suited for and they are doing that in other countries but it's tough because nomads are under threat just like everywhere land is getting bought up things are becoming centralized people without power are getting pushed off their land by bigger interests and we should be moving in the opposite direction and camels are very sustainable hardy animals they don't need tons of you know care And so that means that they're very accessible for people to care for. Like, and they do, they can be a draft animal too. So, you know, they can carry things, they can pull things, they can provide transportation, and they can provide milk. And then other countries, of course, they're a source of meat as well too, which is highly nutritious. It's ironic how camel culture is expanding in this country and dying out in its more traditional lands. Well, it's funny. It's kind of splintering off. So in this country, yeah, it is growing. I'd like to see it grow faster. It's a slow-growing thing. India concerns me because it is one of the world's great camel cultures. And as I write about in the book, I do travel to India, and there's a lot of amazing heritages they have. The Rika people believe they were created by you know, Lord Shiva to take care of camels, and 
it's been their whole purpose in life, you know, for centuries. And now they're getting, you know, run out of the forest. They're getting the Pushkar Camel Fair, which is a flagship camel event in the world. You know, the space for camels is being reduced, and they put some concrete in there for helipads, and the camels, you know, couldn't rest like they should. And it's really sad. Part of my book was to try to enhance awareness of the value of the camel. Now, in the Middle East, camels are doing better in some ways because you do have the big farms that are kind of, you know, putting the milk out there. And you do have the other extreme, like beauty contests. You have racing camels worth millions of dollars. Beauty contests where they'll win, you know, million-dollar prize or something. You have the most pampered, beautiful camels in the world. And so that's becoming more of a uh, an awareness. Some cam- places are doing camel polo, which is on the increase. So it's just like that struggles from place to place. But I do think overall, I hope that the picture is going up. There has been a great rise in the interest in camel milk market. Economically, it's projected to grow uh, 7 to 10%, which is quite sharp. And the camel is now the second fastest growing livestock in the world since I began my work. So overall, it's a brighter picture, but, you know, some places they need defending Africa and India in particular. Yeah, the situation in India is particularly interesting because the incidence of diabetes is dramatically on the rise. And the diet, the primary diet in India is cow milk, sugar, and carbohydrates, primarily? Well, I do hear from a lot of people that have autism. And so my first thing is, okay, I know it's a sensitive matter, but the camel milk is a great milk, so you don't have to give them cow milk right now, or paneer, which is their form of cheese, and cut back the sweets like gulab jamun, which is like a round, super sweet donut. And, you know, jalebi, which is like a sweet fried yummy dough. And, you know, increase the protein. So, you know, increase your lentils, increase things like that. Then that generally the children are doing better and then start camel milk. So everywhere the diet's not great, though. So, I mean, the Indian diet has got some advantages over American diet. Our diet is so processed now. And there are many additives in our food that are actually creating inflammation in pregnant women that are leading to higher risk of autism, ADHD, and other disabilities. And I do touch on that in my book a little bit. So, you know, our food is so packaged and got so many additives that the system is set up against us. So I would find, you know, easier to work with the Indian diet at this point than the American diet. So it's like defensive eating for everybody now if you want to have, you know, a healthy lifestyle. Here in Vermont, the state has traditionally been a dairy state, but that's fading out, and most dairy farmers are really struggling. The price of milk is usually very low, and there's very little in the way of price protection or support for small farmers, at least. I'm curious what you could say in terms of how it might be beneficial for local farmers up here to consider you know, setting up a cow dairy. I mean, a camel dairy. (laughs) Well, I have been keeping track of that cow dairy issue. So, number one, there is a big movement against dairy, which I don't think is great because animal milk tends to create stronger bone health and things like that in children than on dairy milks. And I think that message is getting lost. But number two, it's the quality of the milk. And, you know, generally, I think that milk should be, you know, as close to natural as possible and antibiotic-free for the animals as much as possible. And so we've had our milk that's kind of gotten to a low price, which we like. It's mainstream-type produced. But 
it's kind of put a window in for a backlash against dairy. And I think it's kind of unfair. But on the other hand, you know, people are looking for what they perceive as healthier alternatives. So I would say that it's worth looking at it. I mean, for Vermont farmers, and there is precedent, as I said, for your colder, wetter states. And certainly, you know, they'd be free to uh, to investigate that. And I think they should, because you can have a nice boutique business doing a milk that's got a higher price point and serving a clientele that really appreciates you. Offhand, I don't know what the raw milk law is in Vermont, but certainly that's something that is changing. I mean, raw milk is moving forward across the country, so you're on the right side of that if you want to look into getting into a raw dairy. So I guess what I'm curious to hear is from your experience of seeing other camel dairies around the country, is it a viable thing to consider? Is it even a better option than continuing with a cow dairy? Well, I don't know all the economics of a cow dairy. I do know there has been underpinning, of course, from the government at various points in the past. And it may not be the volume that they're used to and sustain the big farm. I'm thinking in terms of small local farmers who are, because small farms are disappearing here in Vermont because they're not economically viable. And I'm just wondering if from your experience of seeing other small camel farms popping up around the country, whether it is something that, that you've seen to be actually be viable. Yeah, so here's, here's how it kind of works. If you're in a state that permits you to do a herd share or a raw dairy in some kind of way or sell at the farm, there's different laws, then that's a plus. If you're close to an urban area where people can drive, you know, no more than a couple hours maybe to come and pick up the milk, that's great. But you can ship it in the state if you're allowed your milk. Then it is a good line. People that have a cheaper living cost, you know, if they already own the farm, that's great. You can bring in a specialist to come and help you train your camels. You can visit another farm to help learn the dairy process. There's videos online from Marlon Troyer, an Amish farmer that I, well, he's a Mennonite farmer now that I feature in the book. There are ways to try it. So you might want to start as a sideline. Go visit other people, see if it's for you. Learning to work with camels is very different than learning to work with cows. But if you know livestock, you know livestock. You can get people to come in and help you train. So if you want to have that boutique business, and you have to be outreach to the autism community and the health community, that's where the farmers struggle a lot. It's not their natural thing to do that. So if you're willing to put in some marketing dollars, get a nice label, deal with the demands of that community for the very, very healthy milk, then I think it's definitely a way to go up. Now, it could probably start as a side business, and you have to put the marketing into it. But I do think for people to have that ability to put it into there and transition to it, it might be worth doing. I would love to hear about some of the adventures you've had in your travels around the world. Yeah, I appreciate that. I have had so many amazing things happen that I could have never expected. I mean, I'm a girl from Virginia originally, my people were coal mining people, and we were around, you know, I suppose mules in the coal mines, and then my father had a farm. So I never dreamed that I would be around camels. They didn't have any meaning for me before, except as kind of like archaeological objects. And so, you know, I started out this journey as a single mom under a lot of pressure from taking care of my child, who at that time was really, really impossible at times to, to keep safe. And... So then, you know, I just reached out, and I find that people in other countries are super welcoming to us and super nice to us, and I just feel like 
the hospitality that I've been given when I when I go to these other countries is, is humbling because we, we need to do better on that in the United States. So, you know, my first trip to the Middle East was to Dubai, and it was this amazing camel farm, one of our show place camel farms in the world, and their milk is called Camelicious. And so, you know, going to Dubai, which is a whole different landscape from what we're used to in the United States, was just a real eye-opener and amazing. And then when I remember rolling in through that camel farm and getting to see 3,500 beautifully groomed, gleaming camels and driving up and down the rows of these amazing animals. It was like some kind of mirage in the desert that you can not imagine. And then, you know, getting to see the Bedouins who had brought their camels in for the festival. And, you know, the women are still wearing the face shields that they've worn for thousands of years and, you know, selling their things on little tables out in the desert they're making a living in the modern times, but part of their lifestyle is as it has been for thousands of years. And then I went to the Middle East again, Abu Dhabi, as I described in the book, and visiting, you know, the ancient camel souk, where people have been bringing camels across the desert, the empty quarter, the Rub al-Khali, you know, for thousands of years as a destination, and it's still there. I mean, you might have your bakeries with the modern pastries, and I mean, parts of Abu Dhabi, look like, you know, they could be in California. But then you have these souks that, you know, you've got camels that have been there for centuries and the same thing's still going on. And you've got camels from Saudi Arabia, camels from other countries. You've got an abattoir right next door where people are, you know, preparing camels so that the people can eat them. Um, it's part of a life cycle. And it's just wonderful to be part of a, a cycle that's lasted for thousands of years that I never had exposure to, but I've read about and then I'm suddenly there in the middle of it. And that's one reason I wrote this book, because I wanted to share experiences that are very difficult to get with other people. And so it is kind of a crazy thing. That's why I called it camel crazy, but it's all true. And then visiting India is really humbling and amazing, because India is like a thousand countries in one, but it's never boring. There's always something new to learn there. And the people are very welcoming. And I also, you know, got very, very sick there, too. So... Having that experience in the middle of a village out in the country was definitely something that I didn't expect to have happen, but was it worth it? Yes, it is worth it to me. <laughs> and the traditions are all very unique in their different ways. Um, I was really struck by how, I believe it's the Somalis who traditionally, they don't sell milk, they just give it to people who are sick. Many cultures are like that, like the Rika in India, people in Egypt. Traditionally, camel milk in most cultures was not sold. It was given to people because usually the people that needed it were sick, and so you would give it to them as a good deed. But then also camel milk was a community resource and an individual resource. So in these desert kind of climates where camel milk has been known for a long time, it's part of the community. So the Somali people, they are one of the most camel-crazy countries in the world, and I got to write about them in Camel Crazy. So as they discuss, you have to have milk for your guests. And a lot of these countries are Muslim countries, not all, but a lot. And so they have very good rules about guests where you have to welcome them for at least three days. And so for the Somali people, you have to have really good camel milk because that was their main animal. So you will have, you know, this kind of milk, or then it, once it ages for a few hours, it's called this kind of milk. 
once it's sat around for even longer, it becomes this form of milk. They have a lot, a lot of words for camels and camel milk kind of related things. And so you have to have that for your guests, and you will be embarrassed if you do not offer that good hospitality. And good camel milk was part of that hospitality. And so in the other cultures, too, tea is offered a lot now, but you can have tea with camel milk. You can have, you know, whatever food they have, and sometimes that would be camel meat. Like in Somalia, if a person broke a leg, then they would kill a camel, and that person would eat the camel for 40 days, and then they said that he would be healed. Now, this is something fascinating that I've never shared before. I have just found out, you know, like I say in the book, there's a woman that I interview that grew up in Somalia taking care of camels, and she said the person that is anesthetized, if they drink camel milk all their life, they will not go under anesthesia as well. And I just thought, oh, well, maybe that's, you know, a certain kind of anesthesia back in the day or whatever. Well, I have recently heard from another person, a woman who grew up on camel milk. She's Somali. She lives here. And she also cannot go under anesthesia. Like, they give it to her, and she will not be fully anesthetized in, in America. And it's just really incredible that, Things I'm hearing about the milk lately are even more startling than I have thought. And I've been doing this for a long time. So the whole thing with the milk being special and being given to people is a longstanding thing. It's changing because the demand comes from outside the community now sometimes. So like the Rika, they had to say, well, do we want to sell our milk? Because they don't really want to, but it wasn't something that they did. But now, as they're so challenged economically to keep the camels, which are not in demand as draft animals anymore, transportation, how are they going to survive? So they're looking at selling the milk, and some of them are doing it now. But it's a hurdle for them. You didn't go into it at all, but you mentioned that camel milk is sometimes combined with camel urine as, you know, for medicinal purposes. That's correct. The camel milk is a topic that I approach scientifically. But since there was so little science on it, when I started, you start with anecdote. But anecdote is part of science, you know, where you have something happening, and that leads you toward more investigation. So saying that, there's not a lot of evidence for the cancer treatment for urine and milk yet. There is some studies that talk about the anti-tumor aspects of camel milk, and that is a growing area. Now, there are people that are using urine, the liquid form or a very concentrated form, and treating cancers with that and often in combination with the milk. So there are people that have treated their cancers with that. There's a woman that treated breast cancer with that, and she's, you know, lived 25 years since she did that, and she's fine now, and she drinks camel milk every day. So there are groups of people doing that. It's not something that I could really, you know provide a lot of evidence for myself yet, so that's why I don't get into it in depth. But it is something that I'm looking at and monitoring. So it's pretty amazing. It just goes to show that the camel is so highly adapted that it's super specialized for survival. And some of the traits that make it such a specialized animal for survival in this harsh, harsh climate that it lives in seems like it's also made it super powered in a way that benefits human health. So I guess that's the way that we should look at it now because some of the nanobodies and things are, you know, being used for science applications and medicine. And, and as I say in Camel Crazy, there is a precedent for, you know, urine in medicine. One drug for women is made out of pregnant mare's urine. And I have learned about the best kind of camel that you should get urine from if you're sick. 
So it's supposed to be a virgin camel that is just weaned off of its mother, female, and that's supposed to be the most efficacious kind of urine. So that is not something that I've had to look at myself, but I am kind of following the topic with interest. It's also interesting that camels are not susceptible to many of the diseases that other livestock are. Yeah, they get some, but they're more disease resistant, and there's some that they don't get at all. And the things that they do get, like parasites, is something you have to worry about with them a lot. So if you introduce, you know, different kinds of animals into a pasture together, oftentimes they can kind of vacuum up parasites that the other one doesn't, you know, benefit from. So if you put certain kinds of livestock with other kinds, like if you have cattle and you run a small ruminant with the cattle, sometimes that'll break that cycle of parasites for the cattle. And for camels, I believe it's horses if you put a horse in there intermittently, but they can't really stay in the same corrals all the time because that can cause kind of behavior issues. So, you know, it takes balancing. That's where what we've learned lately in agriculture. If you really rotate and intercombine your ecosystem with the animals and the flora and the soil, you have a much healthier overall structure. And that's something that you get away from with big agriculture and, you know, mono agriculture. And so we're kind of seeing, hey, you have to interleave these things together because they're supposed to work together. And with the camels, you know, we see that they're better off when, you know, they're not isolated from, you know, nature, like any animal. One of the things I mentioned in the book is, you know, camels these days, some of them are not allowed to go out and exercise as much in the desert and roam around, so it weakens their muscles a little bit. But, you know, what animal is, it's very hard. That's why you want the pastoralist people to survive, because they can march those animals, you know, around the country like they do, and that's the best way. But, you know, it's not practical for every society to have pastoralists in it, even though I wish it was. So every animal benefits when it's out in nature. And so the closest we can replicate that is the best. And also camels don't traditionally eat grass. They, they eat a lot of other different things. They traditionally like to graze, but they like to nibble up high. So they love nibbling things off of trees, love eating off of trees. They also will eat the scrubby stuff that looks like it's not edible, but they can handle it. They have a naturally split lip that can like wrap around thorns and wrap around things and in a big plush, you know, full soft lip that can nibble those thorns and it doesn't hurt them. And they do eat grass though in this country and some other places. It's kind of interesting because usually camel milk just tastes just like milk. It's not that distinguishable from cow milk. But for the only time I've ever had, I just got some camel milk from one of our farmers and I was like, oh, this tastes really different, and I'm not loving this taste right here. What is the deal? And it turns out the camels had just gone from, like, their winter grazing onto the brand-new grass, and they just transitioned. And so it was more gamey than I'd ever had. But that's because they were just transitioning. And there are two different types of camels. There, So it's, you know, one hump or two. Can you talk about the different types of camels? Yes, so there are kind of two main archetypes of camels as we know about and that's the dromedary which is a single hump and that's the one that most of us recognize because it is used most commonly for dairy industry and for other things and there's like just a lot more of them in the you know society that we're used to seeing and then there's the bactrian camels and they're the two humps and they're much more furry fuzzy and they live in our more asian climates and they too are used for dairy but they're just not as commonplace as the dromedary. And then there's actually 
a wild Bactrian, which is a very small group, and it's very endangered, but it's got its kind of own subtype. Science has discovered it's like its own little kind of subspecies, the wild type, and they're super flighty, and you can't even really get next to them, so they're out there. I think it's border of China, Mongolia, but that's kind of a third type, but they're part of the camelid family, and that's the family that llamas, alpacas, vicuñas, and guanaco are in those two. So it's that family, but camels, of course, are the biggest and one of the best known. I mean, the llamas are getting popular these days in the United States and in, like, the imagery. You're seeing llamas, you know, in wedding photos and things like that. But I think that the camels are actually all around just, like, an amazing animal that we need to know more of, even though you know, the llamas and alpacas are great, too. Have you ridden camels? Yes, I have. And it's a wonderful feeling to ride a camel because... You're so high. It's not like a horse, because I have ridden horses, and that's high enough. But a camel, you're really high. And then it's a, kind of funny how you sit on them. It's not as easy as sitting on a horse in a way if you're not used to it. So some countries, you know, you sit up in the front. Some you sit in the back. Some they have distinctive saddles. There are even experts that can look at a saddle and tell you exactly what country it comes from and, you know, what tribe uses it or whatever. So I've sat in the back, I've sat in the front, I've sat with no saddle, and you're just not exactly sure, you know, like, huh, this is not like a horse. And it's pretty cool, too, because when they do a thing called cush, which is when they go down on their knees and then, you know, settle on this ground, you can tilt very far forward and then very far back, like you're on a carnival ride, and you have to just hold on. <laughs> I would love for you to talk about how many people tend to fall in love with their camels. Yes, they do. Once you get around camels, you notice that they're very interesting animals and majestic, and they're very cool to watch. Like, they move in a very slow, calm way. It's very relaxing. It's kind of like watching waves at the beach in a way. Plus, in those other cultures, they know that camels were life. If you don't have a camel in, like, Somalia, in, you know, Egypt, in the Middle East, if you didn't have a camel back in the day, you were dead. I mean, that kept you alive. That kept your family moving. That kept you fed with some form of sustenance. That enabled you to trade or something. So they are very much a symbol of the desert survivability and that kind of culture that people were able to survive and thrive in a very challenging environment. I don't know if we in America have an equivalent to that. I don't think we do. So it's a deep, deep connection. And so people that do enjoy being around animals, they like to go out and spend time with them, visit them. Even if they're, you know, businessmen with modern businesses, they'll like to go out to their camel farm if they can afford one, which, you know, in the Middle East, some of them can. And so they're just very affectionate. They kiss their camels. They hug their camels. And the camels love them, too. And in America, it's amazing how many of our farmers, the camels are right outside their window or they're right, you know, outside the house. And they can hear them, they can see them, and they're just really well taken care of. And they're also very friendly and curious from the stories that you've told. They are. Now, the adult camels, if they don't know you yet, they are going to kind of stand back and watch. They're going to see what you do. They're going to look like they're ignoring you also, maybe. But they are going to be cognizant of what's going on and who are you and what are you doing. But... Some of the adults, they love you. They'll come up. Like, they have personalities, so everyone's different. But the teenagers are, like, so 
so amazing, and the babies are ultra-loving and curious. So when you go to visit camels, if you're getting along with the older camels, they will come right up to you. After you get to stand around and they're comfortable, you will find a nose right in your face. You will find an eyelash right next to your eye. You will just find them putting their heads right next to you. And it can be kind of scary. Even though I'm used to it now, it can still be a little bit scary because they're so big. But then the teenagers are really, really funny. They like to kind of play and, and jump around a little bit. And the babies are so cute. They just look at you kind of like, I don't know if they really look at you as a mom, but they treat you like you're, they're your mom. So they just, you know, come up and shove their noses in you and bleat at you and they wag their little tails. And it's so cute. So the more you're around camels, the more you appreciate them. Like, I didn't start out as somebody that ever thought I was going to be, you know, waxing poetically about the beauty of camels. But one of the reasons I wrote the book, a camel doesn't really have much of a public image, and you can't really protect or save or value an animal that you don't know exists. But as far as the camel itself, I guess I would say it's been around forever and ever and ever, and it needs to keep being around because it is a very special animal, and it's kind of a symbol of things that we don't know about in America, and a lot of the other countries have lost touch with their camel knowledge, too. So it's a symbol of the wisdom of the past that we can easily overlook today, and we should not overlook it. There are things like that out there that we need to have in our lives, and we don't know about them when we may dismiss them because we feel like, oh, that's old or that doesn't make any sense. But True wisdom lasts through the ages, and I think a camel is a symbol of that. Well, this has been fascinating. How could people find out more about camels and your work and camel milk and the various resources that you have available? If you go to my website, christinaadamsauthor.com, then I have different buttons you can push to order the book, and then I also have some fun videos and some of my articles that have appeared in other publications, such as the Washington Post and magazines and things like that. So christinaadamsauthor.com, and then Camel Crazy, you can get at any bookstore. Well, Christina Adams, thank you so much for being on the Magical Mystery Tour. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Antonio, thank you. That was Christina Adams. She's an award-winning author and journalist who writes and speaks about autism and camels and camel milk. And her new book that we have been talking about is Camel Crazy, a quest for miracles in the mysterious world of camels. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. And I happen to have a copy of this book, Camel Crazy, to give away to anyone who would like to call me here at the station at 1-800-646-9437. That's 1-800-646-9437. And coming up next, we're going to travel to the Middle East with audio journalist and storyteller Scott Carrier to the land of camels, or more to the point, the extreme environment where camels traditionally were the difference between life and death. Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. The first thing I learned on my trip to the Strait of Hormuz 
is that I won't be spending much time out of doors. I land in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates on the southeastern shore of the Persian Gulf. And when I walk out of the airport, I'm hit by a wall of heat and humidity that seems beyond possible for the planet. The app on my phone says the heat index is 123 degrees and it's just after midnight. My glasses fog up and I feel dizzy. I order an Uber and he's close by, but it's difficult to walk. My legs are heavy. I'm dripping with sweat. Thank God the Uber is a Lexus, a plush ice box slightly scented of mint with a Pashtun driver dressed as an English chauffeur. My situation is obvious. Outside bad, inside good. Outside is hostile terrain. Inside is the course of empire. The Lexus glides along a smooth, illuminated freeway, elevated among other elevated, illuminated freeways, linking clusters of ornamental skyscrapers that look like neon earrings or a necklace adorning the breast of the Persian Gulf. Or think of the Persian Gulf as a bladder, 600 miles long, 200 miles wide, a bladder that fills with oil. The land surrounding the bladder holds 30% of the world's oil supply. Iran to the north, Kuwait and Iraq to the west, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to the south. The oil comes out of the ground and is piped to ships offshore. And when they are full of oil, they exit the Gulf, the bladder, through a narrow, urethra-like passageway called the Strait of Hormuz, before releasing into the Indian Ocean. The city of Dubai, with three million people, is just south of the Strait of Hormuz, along what used to be called the Pirate Coast, because throughout history, the Strait of Hormuz has been a perfect place for pirates. Back in the Bronze Age, three to 5,000 years ago, the Strait of Hormuz was halfway between the civilizations of Mesopotamia and the Indus River Valley. Merchant ships loaded down with copper and tin, pearls and frankincense were easy prey for lighter, quicker boats. The Strait of Hormuz is only 30 miles wide. Pirates could come out of hidden coves, attack a ship, take it back to their harbor, and get home in time for dinner. Now, in the Strait of Hormuz, there are super tankers carrying 20% of the world's oil supply. Iran which sits along the northern shore of the strait, has threatened to close the passageway if economic sanctions imposed by the United States are not lifted. This, in effect, would be a declaration of war, a world war involving the threat of nuclear weapons. Everyone hopes this doesn't happen, and most people don't think it will happen because it's hard to imagine the level of carnage, destruction, and insanity but then so it was before Sharpsburg and Verdun and Hiroshima. So I want to go to the Strait of Hormuz just to see it, to see what it's like to live here now in the place where a new world war may begin. In the morning, from my hotel window, I stare straight at the sun as it comes above a horizon that's been smeared with barbecue sauce, air pollution. 
An app on my phone says the air quality index is 160, highly unhealthy, close to hazardous. I search the web for as to why, and it seems the answer is growth in population and the consumption of fossil fuels. In 1961, shortly after oil was discovered, the population of the Arab Emirates was 100,000. Now it's 10 million. That's a hundredfold increase in two generations. Most of this increase is from guest workers from South Asia, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh coming to build the steroidal skyscrapers and freeways and shopping malls. One of the shopping malls has a ski slope. These workers now account for 90% of the population, but they have no real path to citizenship. The remaining 10% are native Emiratis, among the richest people on the planet because they control 10% of the world's oil supply. And yet, they have almost no water, or no fresh water. They depend upon desalination plants that use electricity produced by burning oil to provide drinking water for 10 million people, a few of whom go skiing inside a shopping mall. I don't want to go outside, but I have to, because how else will I learn what it's like to live here? First, I walk around the block. I'm in what's called the old part of the city, a shop selling parts for air conditioners next to one with dates and roasted nuts, next to a restaurant with chicken masala, and then a small mosque. I see men, but no women, and no Emiratis. They don't live in this part of town. Apparently, I'm the only one who's sweating. My pants are wet around the loins, so I go back to my room to dry out. Live stories. Simply social. The most connected show in the UAE with eight nine one radio four. Next, I start taking taxi cabs, not Ubers, for short distances, just to have someone to talk to. The cars are older models, and the drivers are from Bangladesh. They come to work for 18 months or three years, and then go home for three weeks to three months. Then they come back, because they can make two to three times the money here. $1,800 a month, living in close quarters sleeping among other men in small rooms. I ask a driver if the workers ever protest for more money and better living conditions, and he says, Sir, this is their country. We are here by invitation. So you like it here? I ask. Yes, he says. The Emirati people are very friendly, and it's very safe here. Are you worried there might be a war? I ask. He's reluctant to answer, but then says... We don't talk about these things because we are here by invitation. You feel like you're being watched, I say. Yes, he says. And if you cause trouble, you'll be deported. Yes, he says, for certain. But you like the king, Zayed, I say. Yes, he says. He's a wise and generous man. And what about his princes, I ask? He looks at me and bobbles his head and says... They're the same. So I think it's going to be difficult, maybe unwise and not generous, to try to get a cab driver or any of the working class to open up and talk on tape.
In order to meet some of the Emiratis, I go to the Dubai Mall. Not the mall with the ski slope, but still monumental in scale, the shops selling things I never could or would buy. The Emiratis are there, strolling in groups of three to four, men with men, women with women and children. The children wear the latest fashion, while the adults all wear traditional clothing. The men in white sheets that reach to an inch and a half above the marble floor. The fabric looks to be of the finest cotton, but without a wrinkle. No wrinkles anywhere. Around the chest and collar, the fabric is gathered into fine, very precise geometric lines. Every hair on the beard and scalp is trimmed and in place. On top of the head, there's a white scarf starched into the shape of flapping wings and tied in place by a double strand of black rope once used for hobbling their camels. The women are cloaked in black, a black matte fabric that has no lines or shadows. It absorbs all light and covers everything except the feet, hands, and face. Sometimes only two eyes can be seen peering from this negative space. I stare at them and they stare back, betraying no hint of emotion or the thought that might be in their minds. The men, on the other hand, act as though I'm invisible. I walk up to some of the men, those walking alone by themselves. I ask if they might answer some questions for the radio story I'm working on. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that the Emirati men in the shopping mall, just like the expatriate cab drivers on the street, will not or cannot talk on the record. They don't even want to tell me their names, but they will talk a bit off tape. They're polite, well-educated, and speak English as though they went to college in the U.S. or the U.K. I ask them, are you worried there might be a war between the U.S. and Iran? And each one tells me, no, it's not going to happen. One man with a slight punch says, this is all gamesmanship, and Donald Trump is a master gamesman. He's applying maximum pressure, his form of diplomacy, and he will win. A young man with immaculate grooming says, Iranians shout loudly in an argument, making big threats, but if you challenge them, they back away. They're afraid to fight. An older gentleman who hasn't shaved in two days says, the Shia are bad, not to be trusted, but their military is nothing compared to the U.S. Iran will not bring this destruction upon itself. But don't you feel vulnerable, I ask? Iran has missiles that can hit your power plants and then you wouldn't have any water or air conditioning. We have our own missiles, he says, from the United States that will hit their missiles in the air. We're prepared for this kind of attack. As for why these men won't talk on tape or tell me their names, they don't really know who I am and there are cameras everywhere. I ask one guy if he's okay with the cameras and he says, we accept the surveillance because it keeps us safe. Everyone keeps telling me this is a safe place. In the middle of the night, I stumble out of bed to the bathroom and slip on the marble floor 
that's still wet from the shower I took before going to sleep. I go down like an old man, crunching my shoulder and banging my head on the floor, and I don't get up. I don't want to get up until I remember where I am. I hear the fan of the air conditioner and remember that I'm afraid to go outside because it's on fire and I'm supposed to write it down, but I don't have my notebook or a pen and I can't remember my name. In the morning, I decide it's time to go to the Strait of Hormuz. I consult the map app on my phone and it looks like the easiest way to go would be on a boat, sailing north up the coast for 100 miles, then turning right to starboard where the strait begins. But this route is problematic because the Strait of Hormuz lies between Iran and Oman, not between Iran and the UAE. So if I went on a boat, I'd end up in Oman without a stamp in my passport. I need to cross the border by land on the highway that runs north along the coastline because there's a customs office there. So I take a taxi, and then a bus, and then a taxi, and another bus. The terrain heading north for the first 80 miles or so is flat and covered by sand dunes. But at the border with Oman, the sand dunes meet the mountains of the Musandam Peninsula, which on a map looks like a little finger sticking up and almost touching Iran. The space in between is the Strait of Hormuz. The mountains of the Musandam dive straight into the ocean as cliff faces, yellow limestone. The water is turquoise to light green, and there are long, beautiful beaches, but no one is on them because it feels like 130 degrees out there, and the water is warm, no relief. On the bus traveling through the mountains, I am the only white man. The driver is Omani. All the other passengers are guest workers from South Asia and Western China. From the top of the mountains, coming down to the harbor of Kassab, I can see how the Musandam Peninsula fractures into islands, reaching out into the Strait of Hormuz. But the air is so polluted, everything fades into haze, and there's no chance of seeing Iran, only 30 miles away. The small city of Kassab is built on top of a gravel floodplain from a river gorge coming out of the mountains and spilling into the ocean. There's no water in the riverbed, and it looks like there hasn't been any since the Portuguese were here in the late 1600s and built a fortress, still standing, with cannons aimed at the ocean. The city now survives on fishing, tuna and sardines, and trading back and forth with Iran. Small boats carrying electronics and consumer goods from Dubai cross over to Iran, and then they come back with livestock and vegetables. In the town harbor, there are 50 to 60 of these small boats, all open skiffs 25 feet long, powered by one or two 200-horsepower outboard motors. Most have open hulls for cargo, but some have benches and seats to take tourists out among the islands for scuba diving and dolphin watching. I find a tourist boat with a barefoot captain and ask if he'll take me out to the shipping lanes in the middle of the strait where I can see the oil tankers and military vessels passing back and forth. His name is Ali, about 40 years old, bald with no hat, and he speaks just enough English to be suspicious of my request. 
You don't want for swimming or looking for dolphins, just for ships, he asks. Yes, I say. Why, he asks. Because I'm a journalist and I want to go there and see what it's like, I say. But he doesn't understand the word journalist, and maybe I don't either. So I say, because I think there's going to be a war with Iran and it'll begin out there. Now he looks confused and even more suspicious. Maybe I'm a spy and he could get in trouble with the authorities. He starts trying to back out. Today, he says, the air is too much smoke. Maybe you cannot see the ships. He's right. Visibility is three, maybe five miles. But I tell him I still want to go and offer him a hundred bucks. And he says, okay. We motor out of the harbor to open water where Ali gives the gas to the 200 horsepower engine and we are flying, surfing and pounding the waves and water's flying up in my face. Being on the water is so much better than being on the land. There's another skiff on the water. Ali slows down and pulls alongside. The boat has two men and a whole herd of small goats as well as some gasoline and plastic tanks hidden under a tarp. Ali talks to the men, tells me to turn off my tape recorder, and asks if I have 20 bucks for one of the 12-gallon tanks of gas. It takes about a half hour to get out beyond the islands into the open strait. In the distance, I see vague silhouettes of two oil tankers and a military vessel. They might be five miles away, but it's hard to tell because the air is Vaseline. Ali slows to an idle, and we sit there. The water turned to glass, the boat rocking on long, smooth waves. Can we go farther out? I ask Ali. No, he says, and offers no explanation. He's the captain. It's his boat. So this is it. I've come to the Strait of Hormuz, and there's very little to see because the air is so polluted. The sun broils down upon me. Time and distance disappear. I've arrived in purgatory. I ask Ali if he thinks there will be a war with Iran. He ponders a bit, holding the steering wheel even though we're not moving. And then he says, no, inshallah, God willing. Okay, I say, let's go back. New satellite images show the ship docked in the port city of Bandar Abbas. It's now flying an Iranian flag. The next day, I find out by watching CNN that Iran has taken a British-flagged oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz and that it happened while we were out on the water, only about 10 miles away from where we stopped. Some of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard flew out there in a helicopter and descended by rope to the deck of the ship. Vestina in peril, and then forced it to the nearby Iranian port of Bandar Abbas. It was an act of piracy using a helicopter. I bet they got home in time for dinner. But apparently the siege of the tanker is of no major concern around here. The papers in Dubai are running only the international coverage, no local reporting, and the people I talked to, like the concierge in my hotel and the guy who sat next to me at lunch, they didn't even know about it. And when I told them, they shrugged it off. 
I feel like Henny Penny running around yelling the sky is falling in a foreign land on the other side of the world and it feels lonely but it's a good thing overall because it means I'm wrong and there won't be a war so I'm gonna let it go for now stop thinking about it I'm hanging out in a hotel room in Dubai waiting for my plane ride back home switching the TV between the riots in Hong Kong Donald Trump speaking at a rally and a call-in for spiritual advice show the host taking calls is a woman sitting at a table with a painting of the Quran on the wall behind her she's wearing a black cloak that covers everything including her face and hands she's blank space all you see is a white pen she uses to take notes and wave in the air when she talks on the bottom of the screen there are the phone numbers to call I wonder what I would ask if I called probably how will the world end and when and I bet her answer would be only time will tell I'd like to thank everyone around the world who listens to this show. I hope you live in a beautiful place where the air is clear most days and it's not too hot in the summer. Check out our website, homebrave.com, for some photos from the UAE and Oman and the Strait of Hormuz. Also on the website, there are buttons to push to donate and subscribe. If everyone who's listening now donated four to eight cents, less than a dime, I could cover the expenses for this story. If everyone donated a dollar, I could cover 12 stories, something like that. You can donate a dollar a month by subscribing through PayPal if you want. Lots of small donations really add up and keep this show on the air. So thank you very much. I couldn't do this without you. That was Scott Carrier, and his work can be found at homebrave.com. That's homebrave.com. He does a lot of really wonderful stuff.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.